The scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 16 through 21. The Lord says, Who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters? Who brings out chariot and horse, army and battalion? They will lie down together and will not rise. They will be extinguished, extinguished like a wick. Don't remember the prior things. Don't ponder ancient history. Look, I'm doing a new thing. Now it sprouts up. Don't you recognize it? I'm making a way in the desert, paths in the wilderness. The beasts of the field, the jackals and ostriches, will honor me because I have put water in the desert and streams in the wilderness to give water to my people, my chosen ones, this people whom I formed for myself, who will recount my praise. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. morning. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that we can gather in this space to sit together, to wonder together, to comfort one another, and to look toward where it is that you might be leading us, certainly as a church, but as a people, as your people in this world. And so I ask and invite your spirit to come into this space and move freely throughout our hearts and our minds, that you would clear away the clutter of the things that crowd into our imaginations and our thoughts and keep us from hearing you clearly. May we be present fully in the ways that we need to be to receive what it is that you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I learned about the concept of Sankofa. Originating from the Akan tribe in Ghana, the word can be broken up into three parts. San, which means go, return. Ko, which means go. And fa, which means look, see, seek, and take. And the literal translation of the word and the symbol associated with it is this. It's not taboo to fetch what you forgot. But this idea of looking back as we move forward It's taken a pretty contentious turn over the last several years. After all, no one would have looked twice at a person wearing a red hat before 2016. Now you've got gag gifts like these showing up on the internet. (laughs) For those of you who can't read it, it says, made you look, Black Lives Matter. The difference, of course, is that Sankofa is not about remaking the past, but rather understanding that your history and your heritage is essential to knowing your current self the world around you, and how to work for the betterment of both. Sankofa is an invitation and a reminder to draw from the gifts of the past so that we might be equipped for the future that we are moving toward, a future which may feel uncertain, unfamiliar, or unclear. It's just this kind of future which the author of Isaiah 43 is speaking to as he addresses his people. Chapter 43 is the beginning of what many scholars call Second Isaiah, 
Now, if you've read through Isaiah, which I know you all have, you may have noticed that after finishing chapter 39, something happens. Not to be a hater, but those first 39 chapters, what is called First Isaiah, the author is like pretty doom and gloom, filled with admonishments for Israel's bad behavior, calling the people out on their hypocritical faith. During that time, Isaiah is joined by the minor prophets Hosea and Amos in threats and warnings that God will cut them loose to reap the consequences of their cavalier commitments and unsavory political alliances. In the last section of First Isaiah, in chapter 39, Israel's king displays all of his wealth to diplomats from Babylon. And God's last words are, days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your ancestors have stored up, have worked to pull together for you will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Even your own children will be taken away, reduced to eunuchs who care for someone else's wealth. The curtain falls and for 200 years there is no word at least from Isaiah. If you want to know what happens during that time, you have to hop over and hang out with Jeremiah. But then chapter 40, the opening words reveal a very different state of Israel. From wealth and self-determination, grandiosity and overconfidence, a constant stream of ominous threats and fearsome oracles from God, the first words out of God's mouth in chapter 40 are, comfort, oh comfort, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid. Something has happened, and the kids are not okay. We don't know all the details, but at this point, Jerusalem has been decimated. The people have been conquered, and they have not only been economically and politically gutted, but also spiritually subjugated. But then something unthinkable happens. Persia has conquered Babylon, and not only that, Persia's colonization tactics are of a more humane sort. The people might actually be allowed to return to their beloved Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. But first, what lies between them and Jerusalem is 500 miles of desert that they would need to cross. They would have to risk all of what they have managed to hold on to during this exile after generations of brutality to pursue. But after so much time apart and away in in such a dramatically different landscape, what does rebuilding even look like? Earlier this week, I had an opportunity to sit down in conversation with Steve Hong, the founder of an organization called Kingdom Rice. As he shared with me about the work that he engages in to help build bridges between immigrant pastors and pastors of color, the prayer walks that he and his team have led through Chinatown, something we'll have an opportunity to engage in during Lent. Steve also shared with me about the ways in which he has seen how many children of Asian immigrants struggle to mine their histories, how those stories intersect informative and often painful ways with a repressive expression of faith, of geopolitical displacement, of systemic racism that exists within a black-white paradigm, an economic precariousness, In response to all of this pain and emotional chaos, it is often the choice to just leave it all behind and not look back, to forge a future that is free of what all that filial piety obligates us toward. But the truth is, there is no future that is void of our past. And our unwillingness to engage it, the good, the bad, the beautiful, and the ugly, weakens our self-understanding 
and hamstrings our ability to truly imagine a future that not only frees us of the wounds that we carry, but also the traumas which our ancestors passed on to us, whether through socialization, epigenetics, or just good old-fashioned bad theology. And I know I said a lot there, so I'm gonna invite you to revisit this sermon on podcast and play that line over again. <laughs> because each piece could be a sermon and a therapy session in itself. The piece that I wanna focus on, that Isaiah is focusing on in our passage for today is this. There is no future that is void of our past. The past, as William Faulkner once wrote, is never dead. It's not even the past. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news, you would have heard about the three tragic events that have, about three tragic events that have occurred recently. First, in Monterey Park, Saturday of last week, a 72-year-old Asian man walked into a ballroom and opened fire. After killing 10 and injuring 10 more, he got into his van and drove to another dance hall where he attempted to do the same. Then a few days later, a 67-year-old Asian man visited two farms in Half Moon Bay, places where he had worked, and gunned down coworkers. And then on Friday, Memphis authorities released video of Ty Tyree Nichols' traffic stop from earlier this month, where footage of a brutal and deadly beating by five police officers was made public. This, of course, is the latest in an overwhelmingly long list of black men who have died at the end of what should have been a benign and uneventful traffic stop. Of course, the unique detail of this instance was that the five officers who participated in the beating were black. These are hard realities, difficult to wrap your mind around in any circumstance, but made even more complicated by the fact that in both instances, all of the instances, the attackers were the same race as those who were attacked. Now, I wish I could offer a word of explanation or some kind of logic to help it all make sense, but the truth is that this is gonna take some work to untangle. And one of the essential tools for untangling is to look back, to engage our histories. What prompted a man to go to the center of Asian America during a time when he knew the community, a community that he was part of, would be gathering for celebration and joy to gun down his own people? Statements say that he had been treated poorly by ballroom owners, that he had suspected his family of poisoning him. In Half Moon Bay, the descriptions of poor working conditions and bullying among coworkers have surfaced. And in Memphis, reports of how the particular policing unit to which the officers belonged, a new kind of unit, was specifically trained for aggressive street encounters. These investigations and findings are a start, but I've grown weary of easy answers and a new cycle that turns over too quickly. I could talk about national gun control laws, I really could. And I really think that that is one piece of the puzzle, if we're gonna link all of those events together. I could talk about what it might look like to reimagine communi community care and safety through the lens of an abolition of abolitionist imagination. I could lament the loneliness and alienation which our elders, and especially immigrant elders, have confronted with after laboring well beyond their years of productivity for an American dream that had long since become a nightmare. But friends, this ain't no Red Sea we're trying to cross. We're looking at 500 miles of desert. How in the world will God get us through? That's why in our passage for today, Isaiah is calling the people to remember. Remember the one who created you, the one who formed you. Remember how God helped you to pass between waters and walk through fire. Our God of then is that same God now. A God who has not just made a way, but is making a way. 
through the tumultuous waves of the sea and the treacherous currents of mighty rivers. This God is here, active and alive today. But then Isaiah does something weird. Then he says, don't remember the former things. Don't consider the things of old. And I wouldn't blame you if you got tripped up right there because he literally just made them remember <laughs> all the former things. Except if you look closely, it's not all the former things. It's not, remember how Pharaoh committed race-based genocide or remember how I wiped out all of the Earth's population through a great flood. No, it's a curated kind of not remembering. What don't remember means is this. Don't sink into the bitterness of the past. Don't dwell and ruminate on all the wrongs that have been done to you, even though you might legitimately have reason to dwell on them. Instead, remember this. I love you. I love you so much that I will give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba in exchange for you. Remember that I am your liberator and you are my beloved. Take this, eat this, and act on this in remembrance of me. Isaiah is calling the people to Sankofa, to leave behind what does not serve the future, but also to carry forward the things that do. To understand that while today's circumstances may look dramatically different from yesterday's, God's central work remains the same, the complete liberation of bodies and restoration of community. Instead of a pharaoh that exploited labor, this time it's Babylon, an entire empire which plundered intellect. Rather than facing a river, the people are looking at nearly 500 miles of wilderness. And while God's ultimate work of liberation remains the same, Isaiah cautions us against any illusions of making Israel great again, at least in the ways that greatness once appeared. No, this, this new reality demands a new imaginary. The wilderness, which had always been seen as such a fearsome place, impossible to exist in, certainly not to thrive in, filled with frightening animals and unforgiving conditions, Isaiah says it's no longer a threat, but a place of promise. Isaiah says, look at this new thing that God is doing. Thorns and thistles, jackals and ostriches, what had long been seen as fearsome and frightening, are now mouthpieces of God's praise. Where there was once arid land are now rushing rivers. In other words, God isn't just liberating the people. God is liberating all of creation, loosening the tongues of those who had long been relegated to survival status so that they may speak with abundance and abundant realities of what God can make possible. What do we do next? I don't know. And if I did have an answer so quickly and easily, I'd say you shouldn't trust me anyway. We are in a mess of all kinds. The way to liberation and restoration is not entirely clear, or maybe we're not ready for the courage that it requires. Maybe we need to cultivate a prophetic imagination that enables us to see with new eyes what is possible. Maybe we're not ready for the courage that demands us to enter the fearsome desert Trusting that God will provide not just what we need, but more than we could imagine. Trusting that this abundance will be enough to allow us to reshape the entire landscape of our imaginations. Turning that fearsomeness of the jackal and the intimidation of the ostrich into signs and mouthpieces of God's praise and redemption. Courage that is shaped by trust 
and fueled by a, the love of a God who would trade the wealthy and powerful empires of Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba combined in exchange for our emancipation. Freedom from the structures which feed off of our fear and anxiety. Our sense of not enoughness. Return, Isaiah says. Look, seek, and retrieve the proof, the witness of God's creative and abundant liberation. Stories and testimonies which remind us that what we see is not all of what we can get. And what we have is a promise that equips us to step forward, perhaps with fear and trembling, but forward nonetheless into a future that God is beckoning us toward. Let us pray. God, we are afraid. And our imaginations have grown so small. Help us, God, to be liberated in our spirits, in our minds, in our imaginations for what is possible in this world, what is possible in your love. Help us to act and live with courage, the courage to be vulnerable to one another, to keep showing up, even in spite of all of what could possibly tear us apart. Give us the courage to lean in when the conversations grow difficult. And let all of that courage and that fear and trembling and faith transform us so that we might be your people with greater honesty and trust and love for you, for one another, and for all of creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.